Welcome to the WCAPS Vibe podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vibe. Vision. Impact. Voice. Hi, everyone. This is French 22 Design and Creative Strategy Studio based out of Columbus, Ohio. I am Lara Al-Sudani Weeks, and I am the art director at French 22. Hey, everybody. Fredo Augustine Weeks, the sixth, and I'm the creative strategist slash designer and fine artist at French 22 Studio, as well as activist. So we're going to get this started right away, right, Alfredo? Yeah. So, All right. Uh, so first question is. First question. First question. How has art mm. shaped the Black Lives Matter movement, in your opinion? In my opinion. Okay. All right. So it's it's been a lot of different levels to it, right? It's been it's been so many different levels of engagement. Starting off early on, early on, just just seeing how things were going. I remember one day. I just turned to you, right? And I just said, you know what? I can't I can't sit here. As as much as I didn't want to go outside for the you know, because of the COVID and everything, because of, you know, the virus, it seemed like it was going down and then next thing you know it went back up. But I just kind of turned to you one day and I said, Hey, I can't sit right here. I'm gonna I'm gonna go out and I, I gotta figure it out and try to march with the protesters and be out there because there's no way that I'm going to be able to sit here and feel okay about watching my peers, comrades, everybody out there and using your, using their voices to, 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 to fight against social injustices, to fight against police brutality. And how was I feeling about all of this? I mean, I was here all by myself watching the girls yeah. and, you know, just like the, <laughs> I wanted to come out there with you. I needed to be out there, but it just was not. You you were up there like, yeah, let's get the girls. Let's go. Let's put them in the car. I was like, "Mm -mm, that's not a good idea. Right? But sooner or later, you know, we wind up going downtown with the girls. And, you know, know, Layla and Mimi up there in the video, we recorded them. They say, Black Lives Matter. They're like, Black Lives Matter. It really, it really even started a little bit earlier than that because I wanted to just go out there and share a voice with with the protesters, uh, not even knowing what to expect, not even knowing exactly where this is going to go. I just knew that I needed to be present and I I needed to be there for us also as a family as a whole. As a business. Um, as a business, right? But what happened was that I think probably the second time I went downtown, I said, let me just get out my phone. Uh, I need to talk to some people because this message and this movement that's going on, I'm seeing so many mixed messages online, on on the news and everything. So many people are lying about the protesters and saying that they're 
they're, they're violent, saying that they're doing X, Y, and Z, everything under the sun. And I said, you know what? Let me report. And I'm going to do that one-on-one engagement with the people who are on the scene. Because a lot of people didn't know what to believe, right? So maybe if it was some kind of grassroots type of news anchor type of uh, interview thing that I just just started doing, maybe people would, could, could get a, a deeper perspective on what was going on. And, and so what I did was I didn't even know the format. I didn't know the questions. I didn't know anything. I just felt it in my heart and I just went with it. So I just pulled out my phone. Right. And I was on my phone and I was standing next to the light post, this light post right in front of the right in front of the state house downtown Columbus. And this guy just kind of walks up to me and he just stands right next to the pole next to me. I'm just like, who, who, who are you? <laughs> and he's like, he's like, uh, no, I'm just standing around, you know, so I'm suspicious already. And we started talking you know, about what was going on and everything. And and I asked him, hey, can I interview you? And he was like, uh, nah. <laughs> I was like, no, let me, let, me, let me keep trying, right? So I kept talking to him a little bit, and he still said no. So I said, you know, you know anybody else around here that might, might be interested in, in maybe talking about what's going on? So it just that conversation that me and that guy had downtown, a guy that I didn't even know, kind of sparked my drive to go after more interviews. So I just started going. I just started going up to people just just out of nowhere. Just, hey, my name is Alfredo. I represent French 22. Can I do a quick interview with you? Yeah. Cool. All you have to say is that I give French 22 full rights to this video. <laughs> Perfect. Okay. Then I started talking about the power behind the arts. What's the impact of the arts lately on this movement? How do you see uh, the arts spreading the message? And what have you been seeing while you've been out here in the protest, in the thick of it, marching? What have you been seeing? Has it been positive? Has it been negative? What kind of vibes are you getting from your, your, the other protesters that are out here? Is it positive? Is it negative? And I mean, so many people gave so many perspectives, right? But ultimately, when it came to the arts, a lot of people were just saying that it was absolutely necessary for the arts to be involved in any, right? There was this one doctor, this actually these two doctors that I was interviewing, and and the doctor said she she said that, you know. It's hard to get one message to so many people, right? It's hard to get that message and and make it consistent to so many people, right? I mean, yeah, we can do it on social media and everything, and we, we can do all of that. But knowing that people are already skeptical of what they see online, people are already suspicious about what they're absorbing online and and everything. But she said something like this. She said that, you know, art has the power of, of, of having a message travel. You can put a spray paint, uh, a painting or a piece of art up in a building or billboard or something. And that message travels. And as simple as that, 
it, it, it was really powerful. As simple as that, it was really powerful. And I thought that I thought that she was really able to just bring it full circle. And that message continues to travel every time an artist are putting their work up on the wall and they're out there holding up signs and banners or creating a mural to make us remember, right? The artist makes us, the artist makes the population remember. It keeps us from forgetting what's important. Every time we pass those mules, every time we we go down the street and we see a certain tag or we see a spray painting that pertains especially to a protest, they keep us from forgetting. They keep us remembering what's important for the moment, why we're out there, why we're doing it, right? And 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 how to grow from that because there's so many different messages in so many different ways. But it's crazy that when you put them all together, you can actually say it's really about the same issue when you're seeing it right here in these protests in 2020. It's really about the same issues. Police brutality, police in our community, black and brown community, making sure that we're holding police officers accountable. Yeah, we're not saying police are necessary. No. You know, I want to live in a safe neighborhood just like the next person, right? But we know that police need to be held accountable. Police need to be held accountable to what they do in these communities, these less affluent communities, right? These communities that some might depend on on help from uh, local and federal government for assistance, right? And then how much pull do those communities have with with their city council? Right. A lot of a lot of a lot of times you see how politicians are just run to them for votes. And then at the end of the day, nothing comes back to them. Right. And so right now in the Black Lives Matter movement, you see that there, there there's so many there's so many communities that are frustrated. Right. They themselves might have not lost a relative to police brutality, but they might have heard a story or they might have experienced a, a, a situation with police, right, that they felt it was unjust. Their family or friends might have been treated unjustly. And how do how, how do how do you hold them accountable? Right. How do you how do you hold these police officers accountable to what they do to these black and brown communities? Right. We think I think that they should be held at a higher standard because training permits, right? Because training dictates, training says, hey, I've gone through courses and I've gone through training and how to treat people, even though I have a gun and a badge, right? I went through training to know how to speak to people, how to de-escalate situations. And so right now you see where you see where really the the larger message is hold them accountable. Just hold them accountable just the same way you hold everyday citizens accountable, right? Especially everyday citizens who, who aren't rich, who don't have the money, right? And you know, school to prison pipeline, that's a whole nother discussion. But at the same time, you know, hold these 
hold these officers accountable to to policing these communities in unjust ways, right? I can talk about being in Washington, D.C. and walking through my city and feeling like, hey, everybody's looking at me like I do not belong, but this is my birthplace. And the people that I'm looking at, I know they are not from there, right? And so why is it that when I walk around my own neighborhood, I get stopped, I get searched, right? As a, as a, as a black man walking through my own neighborhood, I get stopped and searched for what? I'm not doing anything illegal. I'm not doing anything that that that's uh, suspected of being a crime. And so next thing you know, you see those very same communities in Washington, D.C., in my hometown. Right. That that are starting. You start getting more funding into these communities. Sidewalks become cleaner. All of a sudden, black people get pushed out of the community. Money comes into the communities. Condos go up. Why? Why couldn't the government invest into certain programs while the black communities were there, right? And so the policing of black and brown folk, even after the gentrification, it seems like it gets, it's still the same because it's like, hey, this is my community before the gentrification, right? And you're policing me to keep me in line. Right. You stop and search me to try to keep me in line. But then after the gentrification, you're trying to police me because, hey, what are you doing around here? You don't look like you belong. So where 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 do I find myself a home again? Right. How can I go back home when home feels like I'm just going to be policed anyways? So I think that with this comment that you just made, it will it, it really reflects on the next question that I have for you. And it's about white supremacy and how do you think that has impacted the art world in Washington, D.C., in Columbus, Ohio, in the United States, outside of the United States? You have so much experience in the Middle East. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that and how that has... It's, it's really... Right... Racism is just not an act, right? It's a it's a system of things. It's 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 the politics. It's the the culture as well. It's it's so many things that make make one race above another systematically, right? And within the arts, I can say that systematically, in in less affluent communities, right? You see. And in most of so many of these communities that, that are less affluent, you see where a lot of them are black and brown. Right. And 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 you realize as soon as it's time to take a little, you know, money out of the schools. Right. To start cutting a little funding. The first thing that goes are the arts, art programs. Right. The first thing that goes are the are the uh, are the after school art programs right and then those art programs are are allowing a lot of extra free time for these kids right these adolescents these youth to go out and involve themselves with things that they didn't even want to be involved in to begin with right i remember 
early on coming to Columbus, we were we were involving ourselves with so many so many schools and different communities, right? And and not to not to just call out right one school or one neighborhood or another, right? Because it's not the residents. I'm not saying it's the it's the kids, right? It's not the kids' fault that they have access, right? It's not the kids' fault that they don't have access, right? But one thing I realized was that why is it that you go up into places like Dublin, for example, up Arlington, areas here out here in Columbus, right, that we know, and you see that they have a strong art program, a strong, strong, strong art program, and funding and supplies and everything under the sun, right? But then we go out to uh, neighborhoods like Hilltop or on the west side of Columbus, West High School, and art teachers are taking money out of their own pockets to buy supplies for their students, right? And so uh, what what I believe, what I believe is that one of the worst things that have happened to humanity, right, to humanity is white supremacy. And I'm not going to bite my tongue about that. I think that's one of the worst things that has happened to humanity because it, 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 it allows a, a, a false narrative in history, right? But then that history is then placed onto that false narrative of history is then placed onto black and brown communities, right? And so within this whole system of white supremacy, right? You see it in the schools. You, you, you see it the way this lack of funding, like you see one community that's, that's predominantly white and then you see another community that's predominantly black and the funding, you can see it, like a blind person can see it that the fundings aren't the same. And so what I believe is, is that it's this system that starts this, this, uh, this roller coaster ride of, hey, who's going to get to excel in the arts or not, right? While the more affluent communities, the more, and I've seen it, the more white communities, right, are streamlining, are, are easy access front door, you know, uh, deliveries to these art schools, right? To these more influential art schools, right? After pro after school programs are strong, right? Resources are strong, uh, supplies are there. While on the other hand, you have a lot of black and brown communities who are lacking funding in their art programs, and they're these these students that are passionate passionate about the art, they're trying to figure out how am I going to get pencils? They're trying to figure out, they're trying to figure out how I'm going to get, how I'm going to get supplies. And so if, if, if they're trying to figure out how they're going to get supplies, essentially they're wondering, should I even go into the arts? Right. And then let's say by the time they graduate from school, 
and they're thinking about, oh, what art school am I going to go to? They see these art schools with these sky-high tuitions, right? And then they're trying to figure out, you know, you know, maybe maybe go in there for a semester, then we'll figure it out from there. You know, I'll get a little financial aid, and then we'll figure it out from there. And we're just going to keep going, we're going to keep going, we're going to keep going, right? And me teaching so many, uh, my, you know, black freshmen, right? I've seen that the dropout rates, it just seems so much higher, right? And the struggles that so many of these freshman students face and the, the baggage, right? It seems like some of these students come into the classroom with the weight of the world on their shoulders. And they're just saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to do this. But every time they come into class, it seems as though they're saying, you know what? They, they had to push the reset button to try to figure it out all over again, right? But on the other hand, you have a lot more of these affluent, predominantly white communities that you know that these students are coming from a strong art program, right? And they're just moving right along. They're just moving right along. And then after college, what do you have? You have this, this, this culture of, of artists, and designers who are out there in this professional world that are predominantly white in these higher positions, right? And getting this, this, these artworks that are being sold at, at, you know, outrageous prices, they, you know, they, they're able to have that backing from their communities, from their schools, from their parents, and then not only that, from their neighborhood governments, the councils, the federal government, the funding is there. The backing is there. And that's the that's the biggest downfall. And, and in the art community is where a lot of times white supremacy is affecting how many or how much access and how much resources how many resources are being are being pushed over to the minority and black and brown communities? You know, because uh, let's say advertising, advertising and graphic design, right? We know, I mean, Lord, come on, we know, right? The advertising and graphic design community is dominated, dominated by, dominated by white, middle-aged men. Is dominated by them, right? And 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 it, it's it's crazy that I have students second guessing if, hey, do you are you really a professor here at this this college? Because they've never seen anyone else, anyone else that looks like them in the field, right? When students come up to me and they they ask me. Hey, are you a professor here? Do you do you work here? Or even when I'm in the classroom with them, right? I'm in the classroom with them, and they're giving me this what long stare. Is that really the question that they ask you? What did they ask you when they first saw you? When you told me one time that a group of 
black minority students have walked up to you as you are walking out of the building and asked you that if you work in the kitchen, if you work as a janitor, if you, you know, tell, tell me that story because that was so shocking. And I did not even believe that, but I mean, it's, it's not shocking really. It's shocking because I expected more out of that community, but it's, it's not, it's not shocking because there's no representation for them to see in the beginning. I mean, that time that I walked out of that building and it was at least like seven or eight of them. And I walked right past them. I was getting out of class for probably eight, nine o'clock at night. And I walked right past them, past them. And they walked right past them. And they, they said, oh, excuse me, excuse me. I'm sorry to bother you, but do you work here? I'm like, yeah. Are you a, are you a, do you work in a kitchen? Are you security? And, and, and I would have easily taken offense to that, right? Like, why do I have to be that, right? I already understood what angle they were going for as soon as they started saying that. I already understood what angle they were going for. But when they continued, as they continued, they say, so what department do you work in a certain department? I said, yeah, I work in the advertising graphic design department. And they just said, oh, I said, you know, I smiled, but it was one of the saddest smiles that I ever had to give because I'm happy that they're proud, right? But I'm sad that they have to celebrate, you know? I'm sad that they have to celebrate that there's the token black professor in their department, right? That's what white supremacy looks like. That is what, that's how white supremacy has impacted the art world is that you have black students celebrating when they get a black professor. Well, you know, I just, I think that from also a perspective of a student at the same college, there was no representation for me to see, not just in the level of my professors and my educators, but just my peers. There was very few minority students. There were very few Middle Eastern students. There were very few Muslim students that I can have that conversation with and, you know, interact with and bounce ideas off of where they can understand me and understand where I come from culturally, religiously, all of that. So, you know, to, to know that only a few years later, when you started teaching there, that representation within the student body became better, right? The numbers of minority students were higher at that time, but there was still no representation in the educators and the, the, the professors that are actually giving this information. So when these students grow up and when they graduate, they can see themselves doing what their educators are doing, working in the industry and making sure that they are, you know, keeping that, paying it forward and teaching other minority students to do the same. So I think that this would lead us into the next question, which is investing in art. So how 
do you think, what is the best way to invest in art and why is it so important from a very young age, for example, with our children, how can we make sure that we, that they get the best access to art possible to all the way into middle school and high school and college and then past college? Why is it important for businesses to get access to funding? Why is it important for black businesses to make sure that they are seen in their community? Yeah, I mean, I can answer that question and too many ways, but because you're my business partner as well as my wife, I can, I want to take that question and answer it with a question, right? <laughs> I know everybody hates that, <laughs> but, but how did we start? How did we start our business? How did we start French 22? Where did we start, right? We started Fringe 22 back in 2009 under a completely different name, a completely different structure. Don't say it. Don't say I'm not going to say the name, but it was the same message. It's yeah. always been the same message. Unite, inspire, evolve, change. Our mission from day one, 11 years ago, was we unite communities to inspire them so they can evolve into better individuals to positively change the world. So unite, inspire, evolve, change. So we have been, you, you know, still I still I have to, I cannot, I cannot forget. Yeah. I can't forget this. Yeah. And, you know, we, we didn't have backing and financially <laughs> or emotionally, psychologically, you know, physically, we didn't have, backing from higher ups. We didn't have people that said, we would love to fund you so you can create this event that is run by students, for students, that promotes student work in the art world in the DC metropolitan area. We didn't have someone that gave us information so we can absorb and, and then like put it out there. We had advisors and we had, but we, but we had to go after these people to get them to sit at the table with us and guide us through it. But they were some of the most influential people that we still have connections with until right. today. So but I think in the schools, in the school, in the school system, that's where it was, it was a problem. We yeah, didn't have yeah. our professors did not show up to the, yeah. to, to our event. That even we, though, even though we told the whole school about it. Yeah. We told everyone about it. We told the, the we, we put flyers at Georgetown University, at George Washington University. We went to American University. We went to UDC. We went to a few colleges in Virginia that I cannot remember at this point. But we went all over the DMV area to talk to students and educators and professors and counselors and, you know, people that we felt like can financially support this mission because we needed the money and the money came from our pockets. And when we made money from selling tickets to this event that was run by students, we gave it away. We gave it away to fund one of the students that were a part of the event to start her own art therapy after school classes for elementary, elementary school kids. So, you know, it's, I think that it's a cultural shift to be able to 
help people think different on how to invest in art because it doesn't always come from people who have money. It can come from people who are doing okay, but then a lot of people who are doing okay can invest into one big thing and help their own community flourish and help bring art classes back to the community, whether it's in a you know orthodox way or not, whether it's in the school, outside of the school, in the neighborhood, in your own like apartment complex, whatever it is, I feel like, you know, especially when it comes to younger children, younger students, they will absorb anything that you give them. So it doesn't have to be structured in a very specific way like you would do it in, in college. And I think that, you know, having that opportunity just really helps the artists thrive. Financial backing is so important because you just, you're not, you're not able to do the work to a certain degree without the money. No, you need money to make money, but at the same time you don't, but you do. And, you know, as an example is that we, I was talking to this one artist up in uh, Cleveland who is of Sudanese descent. She's from Sudan and she is building, she's an architect and she's building a van and she wants a calligraphy artist to paint the outside of the van, but then there's no money to pay this artist. So she is looking and seeking for some kind of a network, a community of like-minded female Arab women, you know, female Arab artists that are able to come together and share resources and network and, you know, allow each other to raise funds to build their own projects. So, you know, there's, there will always be a need of some kind of a, you know, whether it's an existing organization or an organization that needs to be created to help fund minority businesses, black businesses, you know, any, anyone that is in the BIPOC, you know, under the BIPOC arena, that they are able to give all of the resources necessary to help them thrive. And it just, just kind of goes to another point that I, I, I love making. Right. I really love making the, the point of saying one of the most empowering things a black person or a person of color can do in America is being an entrepreneur, is determine where your dollars go. Right. I can't imagine where we would be right now if we were dependent completely on uh, a job to keep paying us a paycheck every single week, especially in the environment that we're in right now with COVID-19, right? The whole, the whole world, the whole country shut down, right? The whole, the the whole country shut down and thank goodness we're, we're, we're still moving forward with French 22, right? Years ago, we shut down the studio and we said, you know, we want to work remotely at our own pace. But I think that's one of the most empowering things that we can do is just be entrepreneurs and say, hey, I'm going to determine how much I want to push forward uh, towards my own goals. And and it, it kind of segues us into this next question of, you know, who are the gatekeepers in the community that can really unleash this this 
this support, this financial support, this uh, moral support, this professional support. You know, for me, I think I think it it's not just one person, right? It, it's almost a culture of things that that I think all of us need to hop onto. But what do you think? That's literally what was on my mind. I was going to say we are. We by not just me and you. We as in the people. Like we have the power to be able to spread the knowledge that will eventually end up with the financial backing to help someone thrive in the art world. For example, mentoring. You know, we have taken on a variety of different students in and out of college, just graduated, still in school, in high school, throughout the years where we have guided them through how to write a proposal and how to, you know, price their work and how to speak to a client. And this is, these are resources that people that want to get into the business of design, whether it's, you know, running their own business and becoming entrepreneurs or like just working for another company. They they need to know how the back end of all of it works mm-hmm. so they can be better at how to deliver the work in the best way possible. And especially for business owners, we didn't have these resources. We didn't have, no one came to us and told us, here's how you write a contract, go. Uh, like, no, we had to do the research. We had to oh listen to, you know, to people on YouTube and uh, you know, do our best to try to network and connect with someone that is in our community that's doing this already. But we didn't get like d- hand delivered, spoon fed information on how to do it. We had to do it again and again and again and write so many proposals and so many service agreements and so many contracts and so many invoices until we eventually, you know, Got it so right to the point where it takes us a minute to put together some of these things, maybe. But then we are, you know, we worked on it for so long. We put in our 10,000 hours that we're supposed to put in to be professionals at this. And I think that, you know, it's, it's, I'm glad that we went through that experience, but I just don't want anyone else to have to go through it. I want them to work hard to get there, but because I feel like hard work creates ethics, hard work, creates patience, resilience, right, right. And your work becomes better when you work hard at what you do. And, you know, as much as I want the, the, the students and the, the people that we mentor and anyone in the community that's in the art world to work hard, but I also want them to have the resources to yeah. be able to know how to do these things without having to like, you know, kill themselves to just yeah. get this information. And, we just had to do it for so for years until we finally like knew that we were going in the right pace and we got it right and we're you know we're in a good place where we feel like we don't need to change this at this moment because it's working so you know as much as i think that everyone and anyone can be a gatekeeper for this but at the same time it's it's hard when you're in a community that is mostly run by white middle-aged men the design community specifically here in columbus we you know we started our we run our city out of columbus ohio but maybe like what 10 20 percent of our clients are in columbus yeah. most of them yeah. are in yeah. you know washington dc chicago new york so it's like it's there's no one that looks like us in yeah. columbus that 
has a design studio. There's maybe two or three that we are familiar with that we know personally that have a successful design business, you know, have employees. Yeah, but but that's nothing compared to to like the whole. Right, right. But it's like a minority run business, a black owned business that is thriving and you know, that you can say like they have won awards and they have done good in the community and they have some kind of an impact on their own community. So, you know, I definitely, we both have looked up to these businesses and these individuals and we have seeked their knowledge and collaborated with them and, you know, and learned from them throughout the years. So, you know, I definitely like just as much as we have had, our own kind of mentors, mm-hmm. we want yeah. to do the same for other people. Yeah. And I think that the more of that paying it forward kind of mentality stays within the art world, the more students can and mentees can thrive and and really excel at what they do. I, I think it's, it's, it's kind of unique in our case because, you know, I don't think it was really like a mentorship. I think it was a lot of collaboration, right? Somebody would, you know, have a project and they know we're good in a very particular area. And they're like, yeah, let's reach out to Laura and Fredo, you know? So I think it was just this exchange of information. It was this exchange of information that we were just doing, right? But you just don't see that often in in a lot of these uh, professional communities, because I think a, a lot of times these communities are so uh, hell-bent on saying, no, 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 I can't share this, or I can't share that, I can't share this, or I can't share that. They're so focused on saying, no, 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 this is like, you know, we have rights and, you know, this is, this is, we have privacy concerns and all, all, all this other stuff, you know, NDAs and what, whatnot. That they're so worried about someone's going to steal their information instead of realizing that it's not just the person that's gaining the information that's going to grow. It's also the person that's it's also the person that's receiving the information that's going to grow, right? Uh, that's that's actually dishing out the information that's going to grow. I mean, so you know, it's it's a it's a give give the person that's that's sending out a proposal to us as well as the person that's receiving the proposal. So I think everybody's kind of feeding off of one another and just kind of saying, Hey, you know what? I'm learning something new. I'm learning something new. But a lot of times you don't see that. Right. I remember how, how uh, we reach out to so many different people in the industry and they'd give us the cold shoulder like day in and day out one day in and day out and i'll never forget i remember i was at a point of saying you know what dad business is doing terrible right now i'm thinking about going to get a job (laughs) right and i i tried it for a little bit you know i sent out my resume here and there still still building french 22 and i sent out my resume and things and i mean back home and in other places people were like wow fredo you got an amazing resume so, 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 so. crazy i come out here 
right? More white dominated society. And I come out here and with a, a Latino, like a raw kind of, you know, you can't get more Latino than Alfredo, right? But with a name like that, it was just, it, it, it was kind of telling how much people just weren't even responding, not even a little bit, right? And I wind up reading this article not too long after. I wind up reading this article not too long after about how this one guy, his name was uh, Jose, right? And he didn't get any kind of response on his resume. He didn't get any kind of uh, feedback or interviews or nothing on his resume. Same industry, right? Advertising, graphic design. And the next thing you know, he he took off a couple of letters and he said, you know what? I'm going to just say Joe, right? Joe. And his last name wasn't a particular, you know, Latino name, like an obvious Latino name. But he said as soon as he switched up his name like that and just called himself Joe, he saw floods and floods and floods of emails coming in, interview after interview, right? So I said, you know what? What if I take the O off of my name, right? Instead of saying Alfredo, right? What if I go with Alfred or Fred or something like that? And it just ate at me. And I couldn't. I couldn't do it. I, I wouldn't do it, right? Because I'm not going to compromise who I am to fit someone else's narrative. And, and at that moment, even when business was doing bad, it made me go even harder on Fringe 22. And I just said, you know what? Let's grind it out. Let's get back to the basics. Let's build it back up. Let's make better proposals. Let's do better copywriting. Let's do better work. And then we're going to, you know, uh, try to make sure that we maintain a certain caliber of work. Right. And 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 I started getting more into myself. Right. So it's now that even though I'm in the Midwest and I'm from the East Coast and everything, it's like now before when I was trying to, you know, speak Columbus lingo or or get into whatever I felt was out here, I said, you know what? I'm going to just come here with my culture, my culture. I don't need to take on anybody else's. Yeah, I can, I can explore it. I can I can involve myself with it, but I don't I don't need to I don't need to take it on. I don't need to switch up my name for anyone because if anyone wants me to switch up my name or if anybody thinks that I need to, they're not the people I need to be engaged with to begin with. And that that's also kind of it kind of tells you of that like, you know, white supremacy in the creative industry. You know, people want to be around someone who, you know, it seems like people want to be around some someone who who just, oh, you know, they could be my next door neighbor. They can be my relative. They can be this. They can be that. Instead of learning about someone you don't even know. Right. Maybe learning about a culture you don't even know, which is the same thing that I did when I came to Columbus. I had to learn about the culture of Columbus in order to be able to navigate it. And that's what most black people, indigenous people, people of color have to do. They have to learn about other mm -hmm. cultures, but then other people are not 
willing to learn about theirs. And I always say, I don't mind being the token minority in a sea of white people. But at the same time, like I am, I am done representing and answering questions. And, you know, I went through that for years where I, I'm always okay with teaching you about why I covered the, my hair the way I do and telling you why, you know, I'm fasting because it's Ramadan and I'm Muslim and this is why we fast. And, you know, it's, 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 it, that's it. That's it. You know, like we, we don't have to be the only ones that represent our race. I don't have to be the one that always speaks about, you know, why Arabs are the way they are or why Muslims are the way they are. Or, you know, I, I don't have to always speak to, you know, my husband's background and his ethnicity and, you know, it just, this is who we are. Take it or leave it. See you later, you know? And, you know, I think that all of everything that we are discussing right now, it, it lies in, you know, this final question of how can policy really change this kind of thinking? And uh, WCAPS, the Women of Color Advancing Peace and Security and Conflict Transformation, is largely composed of people and institutions and policy-making roles, and or they're trying in some kind of way to influence these policies. So what are some policies do you think they can promote so art can thrive in communities of color? I think it, it really comes down to a lot of the economics Right, it really comes down to a lot of the economics, and there's a study uh, from the Americans for the Arts. It's a great resource where it states that the the creative community, like that economy in, in itself, is a uh, 877 billion dollar industry. Right, it's an 877 billion dollar industry that really takes hold of cities once it's it's really engaged, you know, and and what I believe, what I believe is that it goes right back to my my former point. One of the best things you can do as a black person in this country is be an entrepreneur and build something of your own. I'm not saying that it's it's to you know you can't have a job and you can't work your nine to five. But find something of your own that you can control those dollars. And the reason why I say that is because if you can, then that means it gives other uh, minorities opportunities to uh, gain certain experiences as well as opportunities. So when it comes down to it, it's really the economics, right? And I really believe that the policies that really need to be focused on come from the roots, right? And if we can start to get more financing and more funding into a lot of these public schools, a lot of these black communities that are lacking funding for their arts programs, that's what I would really go for. Because, you know, it's all it's way too often that you see so many schools that are just cutting funding from their arts programs. I think arts programs are just as important as you know, as the sciences because it leads to innovation. 
it leads to new ways of thinking, right? There's even a study that said kids and students that are more involved in the arts are, uh, are seeing higher GPAs, right? And, you know, it just gives them a new perspective, a new way of thinking, using both sides of their brain to solve problems, right? And uh, I think ultimately, if we put funding back into these after-school programs and back into a lot of these art programs, even our therapy programs for our military, you know, you have a lot of veterans that are trying to make it work. And a lot of the times you see where the arts are really doing great things for soldiers who have post-traumatic stress syndromes, right? And you, you, you see how there's a lot of growth when they engage within the arts, right? There's so many studies that are being done about how the arts are impacting communities. Communities are even uh, are even engaging each other more when it comes to the arts, right? Black, white, brown, Asian communities seemingly, seamlessly, <laughs> seamlessly cross paths, right? When it comes to the arts. So putting arts back into these these uh, early uh, arts programs, these uh, programs in communities, uh, these programs in schools, um, I think will uh, ultimately help new up-and-coming businesses thrive, will help new up-and-coming artists who want to turn this into a career, and then as well as Find better ways for people to uh, to find better ways for people to have this self self help mentality through the arts as well when they're when they're coming across issues as far as mental health, right? And you know there there are cases in where doctors even find help within the arts so they can be more compassionate with their patients. And uh, I think really if we put art back into these schools, if we put art back into the community and stop always every time it's time for a cut, a time for cut for funding, we go after the arts. If we stop having this culture of the arts is just an afterthought instead of the arts being one of the first thoughts, I think we're going to really grow into the nation, into the community of people that we, we really believe we need to become. I think that this is it for us today. So... Thank you for listening. And uh, this is Lara and Alfredo from French 22 Studio. French 22 Studio. Until next time. Peace.